Hello and welcome to another episode of the House of the Hinky Built podcast. As always, I'm your host Jackson Frank, uh, and today we are not on Spotify Green Room. We are uh, we are offline, but I am I am joined by Ben Taylor. He is the author of Thinking Basketball. He has a YouTube page. Uh, he has a Patreon. You can follow him on Twitter at lg35. Uh, check out all of his work. But the plan today is to talk about kind of the idea of building the proper team around Joel Embiid to pursue a title. Um, obviously that is a important topic as it relates to the Sixers and their fans and figuring those things out. Um, but what I want to kind of get into initially is Ben, I think it was last year, you kind of introduced the concept of an offensive number one versus defensive number one. And I think that's very important for Joel. Um, so where did this kind of originate? Let's get some background on it. Kind of what inspired you to offer that distinction and analysis and, and where can people find maybe further clarity on the subject if they'd like a more in-depth explanation? Well, first, thanks for having me. It's uh, I appreciate it. It's a, I'm, I'm in off-season mode. So <laughs> right off the bat, I'm like, you know, building a team around Joel Embiid, uh, I feel like I've been thinking about that for at least three years. I was kind of early on the, on the okay, we have the process because 2018, things click and you have Embiid and Simmons. And I've always been kind of higher on Embiid, lower on Simmons relative to the public, but there's the whole thing with Embiid's health. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, if you're going to build around Embiid, how do you do it and how do you do it fast? <laughs> and yet that's my way of saying, I feel like I'm not going to have a satisfactory answer by the end of this podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah. That's, that's totally fine. I think uh, <laughs> I, I was just, I was just recording a, an episode uh, with Samson Folk um, and we were talking, he we were talking about the Raptors and he, he gave me, I, I kind of asked his expectations for the Raptors and things like that. And he kind of prefaced by being like, I don't really, I don't really know. I don't have an answer. And I was like, the more people we, we have that are, are willing to admit what they don't know or can see what they don't know, the better um, on this. So, yeah. So we'll see where we get to today <laughs> with the, with the larger picture. Your, your first question um, about offensive number ones and defensive number ones. I mean, the motivation, I think, over the years was noticing that when people described how they build teams, they would say, you know, this guy's a this guy's an alpha, this guy's a second banana, whatever, whatever terminology people use. And they're really talking about scoring almost first and foremost, not even necessarily your uh, load, the, the kind of heavy lifting that you provide on offense. So then you get to like the Phoenix Suns in 2005 or the Lakers in the 80s, and Steve Nash is the guy that stirs that drink. Magic Johnson drove those Showtime offenses, but they weren't necessarily the leading scorer, right? So it was was starting to sort of break down that language over the years and try to find something that was more productive. And so the idea for an offensive number one, similar to the way it's used even just with scoring, is – I think of this as, can this be your best player on a high-level offense, Mm -hmm. right? And then the the roles behind it are very important as well because some guys are better suited to be offensive number twos, and it's important to be a good offensive number two. And you kind of want to understand when someone's on the court, okay, maybe on a bad team, they're the leading scorer. But if they go to a good team, are we still talking about a guy who's an offensive number one? I think this came up with Devin Booker a lot as he developed. Or is he better suited for an offensive number two? Or some of these guys over the years have been really good players and leading scorers on bad offenses. And then, frankly, by the time you get to a good offense, they're sometimes coming off the bench depending on what their role is, right? So it was taking that hierarchy and starting to think about where we want to slot players in sort of a a functional role, a hierarchical role on offense, and then applying the same thing on defense. Because part two of this sort of big disconnect for me was, well, you're describing players who are, yes, maybe they're not offensive number ones. Um, The example I use a lot is the David Robinson, Kevin Garnett. Uh, I think Anthony Davis falls in this category. You could even, I, I even feel this way about Giannis Antetokounmpo, although many of these guys are good enough to be offensive number ones on pretty good offenses. I think all of those players I just mentioned, maybe with the exception of AD, have been offensive number ones on what we would consider statistically successful offenses. Uh, the Bucks this year and winning the title, they were an incredible defense and not the most inspiring offense mm-hmm. uh, in the world at times, both in the, in the playoff run and statistically. Um, so the whole picture, which I think is really, really important, is thinking about how we one judge players 
with offense and defensive roles in mind and two, how we build teams, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's important to think as the team becomes better and better, is this guy going to be able to play the same role? And even though it is kind of a simplification, it's an extension of this language we've used forever. Hey, this guy's a number one, this guy's a number two. To me, it breaks down. You have to think about where they are on offense and where they are on defense. And then how we would think about those things fitting together on a meaningful team. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that is becoming more mainstream and has a long way to go still is, is that I think offensively people are starting to get the team building side of things. You know, it's not just this guy can drive, this guy can shoot. Um, they're a good, they're a good match, but defensively, it's still getting to that point where, what does this do? What does this guy do? Well, you know, just because this guy's a good defender, this one's a poor defender doesn't mean that they conceivably make the most sense. Like I mean, obviously that they would make sense to, to an extent, but how can we get more in depth with our language? Um, and, Remind me if, or correct me if I'm in, if I'm off base, but this kind of kind of framing for you. Most recently, you talked about it in the concept of the Lakers last year, where you thought Anthony Davis was kind of the D one versus LeBron was the O one. Is that yep. that's correct? And that's kind of where I, where I, I at least first recall seeing you discuss this. And um, I yeah, I have a podcast about it. Um, I think it was sometime last year i have no concept of time anymore i can't remember such things but it's it's there's a thinking basketball podcast about this topic because that's when it was sort of um coming to fruition or crystallizing a bit more in my mind and i think that's definitely a modern example right where you get guys like ad and a lot of the the criticism if you will or the critique is well he can't be the best player on a on a championship team i don't I don't really agree with that, but I, what I agree with is you probably don't want him being your best offensive player, Mm -hmm. but then you, then you leave out this huge thing, which is when you can get a guy like, look at AD last year. I think Giannis had this to a certain degree this year. Um, We've seen this kind of thing before. If you have a great Draymond green, right? If you have a great, great number one on defense and that player isn't what I would call like an Oh five, like an offensive five, like Ben Wallace was a D one Oh, five, right? Like he is your number one on defense, but you do not want him being your third or fourth best offensive player on the floor at any given moment. But when we have guys who are better than that, when we have guys like, like Draymond green and the role he played on offense, he was not a slouch out there on offense for the 2016 warriors, right? AD, he is like going to be your second best offensive player in most reasonable situations. So that was, that definitely was a recent example, but it's also a, a sort of an example that epitomizes this idea that you can have LeBron be the offensive number one, AD is the offensive uh, number two and the defensive number one. And now you've covered both your bases. And frankly, when LeBron's on, he's a really good defensive player. So it's, you know, it's the Lakers. It's easy to build around those two guys. Yeah, absolutely. And as we kind of parlay this into actual Sixers centric coverage or discussion, um, would it be fair to say that you think Joel could be a D one, but is more of an O two, um, and and so you're not in your head yeah. for anyone who's just not anyone who's not on video here with <laughs> us. Um, and so with that, what is it about Joel that you think you know allows him to be such a good defensive kind of player? You know, in in this sort of title context, uh, and then you know, maybe let's, t- let's touch it into maybe some of the limitations offensively in the ways that you think he needs to be, you know, insulated on that. And so what is it defensively that you think makes him such a, a good, I mean, people know to an extent, but they've seen him in the playoffs, but what is it to you that, you know, think makes him such an impactful defender at the kind of the highest level of, of the NBA? Well, you know, even though the three point line has kind of become the second beachfront real estate of basketball, you know, it used to be just layups and dunks and free throws. And now we've got this whole area behind the arc. I mean, he's still a fantastic paint protector. He's giant. He blocks shots. Uh, We can kind of say, hey, maybe drop coverage isn't across the board as valuable in the postseason, but these guys are still really good. Uh, And I think of him as being slightly more diverse, especially when he's healthy. That's kind of the big question mark with him, right? Because some players, when we say, are they healthy? It's very binary. And it's like, oh, he made it through without getting injured or he didn't. And with Embiid, it's starting to become, like, at least to me, a very rare case of like, hmm, he's probably not going (laughs) to be able to make it through a postseason run fully healthy, but he will be playing 
Mm -hmm. right it's like these little injuries where he's still kind of playing so anyway we can get into that later but his health is very unique to me uh historically there aren't a lot of players like that but it's just size um paint protection as i said i think those things are still massively valuable um he you know he's obviously a giant and like i said he's he's a little more nimble than just like, Hey, this guy can only do one thing on Mm -hmm. defense. So there's some vulnerabilities. I think we saw that against Atlanta again. Was he, was he healthy in that series? Yeah. I mean, maybe as much as we would expect from him, Um, but some vulnerabilities there, but still you're, you're still talking about a guy you build your defense around. You're still talking about someone who both in the numbers in his limited time, you know, the last couple seasons that we have data on, his plus minus numbers and his defensive impact numbers. I mean, these are huge monster numbers, both in the regular season and then again, coming through in the playoffs and Philadelphia, of course, is a defensively driven team. I think the easier part of the conversation we're going to have today is on defense because of all this, the trickier part is, is what to do on the offensive side. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, I think everyone knows about the defense with Joel, but that's why I wanted to, get into this because I do think the offense is a much more precarious subject and, and, and thing to conceptualize. But the other thing I love about Joel defensively is it's, it's the hallmark of basically any of these. I don't know. I don't know if I want to say all time. I don't know if I want to put Joel there, but all the, the great defensive players is his communication and recognition of plays is really awesome too. He's like by game. I don't know if it was maybe the second half or at least by like game two or three of the Hawks series, he was, he called it everything they knew that they're running. Um, he does it all the time as well. Uh, and I think, yeah, the, the kind of the the fleet of foot of him for a guy his size is really impressive. Right. Like, and would you would you say it's? Do you think he got better as a pick and roll defender in this past year? I I personally do. Is that a fair assumption on her? Like, was that something that you noticed as well, or is that maybe me just watching him more in depth than I ever have? It could be the it could be that for you. It's ironically, I didn't watch him in the regular season nearly as much as I normally do. Um, so I don't I wouldn't say I noticed a big difference there, but he may have like because some of these subtleties you're talking about, I think, are on the money. He he's not like your all time level insane reaction. How did you see that guy? but he's pretty good in that area. Mm-hmm. He's he he has reaction and awareness in the paint that helps him be so effective and and not be to me kind of like a a one trick pony um as a big huge giant rim protector paint defender however we want to think about this in the modern game. I think what's so interesting is so I kind of think of him as uh, similar functionally to someone like Patrick Ewing. That throws people because they don't necessarily realize in 1990, Patrick Ewing, before he got a little bit older, before the knees came around, before the the Knicks kind of became the the new bad boys with Pat Riley. And um, there's a great new book coming out about that by Chris Herring. Like, like they were they were great teams. But that 90 Ewing, when he was a little younger, was a monster score like Embiid was a monster rim protector back in the game when back in the day when the game wasn't quite as spaced out there wasn't as much sort of pick and roll coverage awareness help the helper situation going on that you see today and yet like Embiid not a great playmaker his weakness was passing so how do you how do you construct a team around that archetype then the next guy you go to who I think instead of potentially being slightly below where I hold Embiid uh, is above is Akeem Olajuwon. Akeem Mm -hmm. Olajuwon to me is like the ultimate example of a player who fits that archetype where you've got a monster scorer in his day in the post uh, and, and a little outside the post. I mean, he could face and drive and had that crazy footwork, but then on the other end, great paint protection, incredible kind of reactivity, so nimble with his feet and his footwork and his agility. And yet, on offense, much like Embiid, not great at reading the game, right? Like it took him a while to even get to a place where you could build kind of a basic, what what the Rockets ended up doing was kind of a spoken wheel offense, a four out offense back in that, back in that uh, era, throw the ball into Olajuwon, make sure you have four shooters spaced around the perimeter. A guy like Robert Ori as your stretch four helps. Now in today's game, we pretty much almost assume we have that covered in every lineup right uh we assume it's not safe in philadelphia necessarily but you know ideally you'd like that and then you simplify the reads the spurs had this a little with tim duncan in the early 2000s the game was muckier and less spaced out but if you're playing inside out of the post 
give the guy one or two cutter options when the cutters go through, where are the three-point shooters, and then force the defense to double. I, I say all of this to land on with Embiid this idea of like his post-scoring right now, his skill, footwork, touch, um, the fact that he can hit threes, he can up fake, put it on the floor, Euro step as he comes into the paint at, you know, 285 pounds. Like, like he is a phenomenal scorer in this context. But then the difference between his scoring and what we think of as passing, playmaking, like the ability to just drive an offense and punish defenses when they do stuff, it's night and day compared to the other top offensive players in the league. So how do you build an offense around that? Yeah, I, I think that's you know, that's a really important distinction between you know being a scorer and a high level offensive hub. I think he really kind of is a is probably the, the preeminent example in the NBA right now of that. I mean, had an all time you know scoring kind of season last year for a big man. You look at the per one hundred possessions things compared to that, like it's uh, insane. Yeah, um, but sh- circling back to the defense a little bit, and because you mentioned the Sixers are a defensively driven team, um, the defense was still. Very good in the playoffs last year. It was the it was, it was the offense that really did them in. Um, do you think like is this kind of the proper context to build the ideal defense around Joel? Is it's having a great point of attack defender and Bennett's having good helpers and Danny Green, uh, Matisse Seibel is another good point of attack guy. Like, is are we do we kind of have the blueprint defensively for Joel? Um, because you know, he's not he's not a defense unto himself. He's I mean, if you can give that phrase, he's one of the two or three guys you give it to in the NBA, but. Do we have kind of the context for him defensively that is that is best to kind of try and build at least the defensive side of the ball around him? I, I think mostly. I mean, one thing I've thought of in the last couple of seasons, especially with the Bucks, even before they won the title, is that pairing of the huge drop defender who's essentially involved in the action and then the weak side rover right the sweeper like Giannis playing that role and and is it super ideal because because the Bucks, I've said this before the Bucks are almost cheating they almost kind of have a modern version of twin towers when they play Lopez and Giannis on the floor at the same time and so is that ideal maybe that's the more ideal situation but if you didn't have that player alongside him him or beside him yeah i would want awesome point of attack defenders who can play uh basically different screen coverages as they push the ball down into him uh in kind of pick and roll drop situations and then wing guys that i mean simmons can do this by guarding multiple positions matisse does this although these days i don't know what you think but i certainly think of matisse more as like on the ball, like being at that focal point of attack. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it just having guys like that around, I think you're you're guaranteed to have a good defense, whether it's like, you know, slightly better than an above average defense or pushing into that great, like dominant, we're going to win a title with our defense. That depends on the players and the personnel and maybe the coaching. But I think the ingredients are there. And we've, and frankly, I think we've seen that with uh, Philadelphia in the last couple of seasons where their defense, both in regular season and postseason, when they're healthy. I know last year they started the season when they were healthy and had Matisse out there. Like their 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 defensive numbers were off the charts. Um, it didn't hold, but they've certainly had that framework. I think with this kind of personnel. So yeah, I maybe not purely ideal, but definitely the structure there to have the kind of defense you need to. Oh, if we get our offense in decent shape, now we're going to be title contenders every season. Yeah. I think the one thing, if I could, I would, I would love to see Danny Green about five years ago with this, with this roster, just, just more mobility. I mean, yeah. he was, he was good defensively last year when he was an off-ball role, but if he had the movement and kind of the, the screen navigation of 2015, 2016, Danny Green, I think you would have been looking at a team that would. I mean, I don't. Obviously, this is such a weird hypothetical. But probably would have gotten past the Hawks. Like, well, yeah, they would have. They would have had Danny Green, um, but. That's just the one thing that I think would have been really fun to watch Danny be that roamer and that really smart defender alongside, you know, two all NBA guys and, and Joel and, or two all defensive guys and then Matisse doing his thing. But two, two and a half. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Matisse is kind of a wild card, right? I don't know yeah. how you feel about him. Maybe you have better insight on this than I do, but his defensive potential, the way he plays. So in, in the modern game, I think he does two really important roles. I mean, we could get as sort of granular as we want, but I think of a handful of big roles. One of them might be rim protection, right? Um, One of them is point of attack defense that we mentioned. The other one is what I call chase 
off-ball screen navigation, dealing with heavy motion, dealing with movement shooters, right? Like this isn't, this hasn't fully taken hold across the league, but there are a lot of teams you now have to deal with these kinds of actions. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to notice maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the difference between the, an average defender and a below average defender in that area was relatively small. And now I think with this kind of particular skill defensively, if you can't put a guy on the court to chase someone well, you get, I don't, you don't get gashed like off the dribble, but you start to leak everywhere. And so Matisse's ability both to do that on the basketball and with movement shooters, his size and his length to be able to clamp up certain point guards like that, but then also chase wings or smaller players that do that. So he, he kind of has unicorny potential to me in that his defensive impact, if it all comes together, could be enormous. And then he's just got to stay on the floor and hit those threes and, and stay afloat on offense. So I don't know how you feel about that or you think it's reasonable that he could be a neutral on offense, but we've seen so many teams recently try to get these, you know, Andre Robertson, uh, Tabo Cephalosia. Like, I want a guy like that on defense on the floor, but in today's game, if he's a negative on offense, then you're right back in the same problem that the Sixers had and we saw come to come to a head in the postseason where it's like, you can have all the great defensive players you want out there, but if you can't get buckets for large stretches of the game, your defense better be like the best defense in the league or ever. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing too. Like when you related back to the Ben Simmons stuff, like his defense was phenomenal that entire series. It was the offense where it really fell apart and that stuff matters. But yeah, dating back to Matisse, I would say I'm fairly skeptical of him ever getting to the point offensively where he can really play those start level minutes, but I understand the path. Like I can, I can see how it happens, but I'm just skeptical it does. But, but I think that is a really important role. Now you could just, I can just list like six or seven teams that are key these days. Uh, the Heat with Duncan Robinson, the Nets with Joe Harris, yep. the Clippers with Paul George and certain, or at least under Ty Lue, you know, before Kawhi's injury. Um, you know, the Hawks with Bogdan Bogdanovich, he runs off a lot of screens. So um, those are just a few teams that, you know. The think, Warriors. Yeah. Uh, or, yeah we can go to the West. Yeah. Yeah. The Suns with Devin Booker, because yep. obviously Devin Booker is a great off-ball player. So um, less a lesser team and Bradley Beal is a great off-ball player. So I think that's definitely an emerging role as this idea of, as how you function as an offensive hub um, shift because Bradley, I mean, just really to Bradley Beal, he was the main source of offense for the, for the Wizards last year. And he didn't, I mean, he, he ran a lot of stuff on the ball, but he's, he's doing a ton of stuff off the ball. So um, yeah, I, I think Matisse is a really, really fascinating defender and you saw him take such a huge step forward last year. And he, he explained it. He just said that like he got more reps and he understood how to defend these superstar offensive talents, because once you have a better, you know, understanding of their tendencies i mean you can do so many things i because i always compare matisse first like isaac okoro of this year where okoro was such a good defender but he didn't always know how to beat guys to spots and so they would just get to their in their rhythm and it was like yeah that's a really tough shot but they're comfortable with it versus matisse this year knew knew how to cut off that angle and get all those things done and so um just one just one that comparison that's always kind of stood out to me of this year as matisse explained it but um is there anything you want to add on that, or should we shift to kind of the offensive side of the ball with with Joel and maybe some of the more complicated factors as it pertains to you know building the ideal team around him? No, I mean I could stall more and <laughs> stay on defense because it's I think it's an easier kind of thing to see how you have that covered and it's just can you max it out without losing too much offense? That that that's the transition to the offensive discussion, though. Do you need what kind of personnel do you need? Is the is the personnel like I think you saw this last year in postseason rotations. If you go Matisse, Ben Simmons, JoJo, then your defense is really good. But who else are you putting out there to get buckets? Then if you go to the flip side, you know, maybe in, I think in fairness, the personnel wasn't good enough to say, hey, we're going to try like an offensive heavy lineup around him. Because the first thing I would want is a good sort of, pick and roll offensive initiator and, it, and it's tricky right because Embiid is not like a high level pick and roll guy it's mm -hmm. not like you're thinking oh I want to make Joel a, an incredible role man or something it's not like Giannis right where you it's like just get him get him Dame or whatever get, all of a sudden get him downhill yeah yeah it's, it's yeah. a different different role um it's it's a, it's a different thing but that's that's my first thought my first thought is I want a guy to be able to balance the inside out and drive sort of uh, the bus more a lot of heavy lifting from the perimeter and and this way it's it's as simple as when Sam Cassell went to Minnesota 
and just play pick and pop with Kevin Garnett for a little bit. It's like all of, all of a sudden you get a little bit more balance and things get a lot easier. And I still feel like the 76ers are, are just missing that. Um, I'm not going to mention anyone's name, a person who signed in Miami that could have helped in a situation like that. But they, right, that, that feels like the starting point to me. Yeah, and I, I think kind of maybe the undercurrent of that first part from you is – is this idea that usually when, when you talk about maybe a big man scaling to a smaller on ball role, it's okay. Just run pick and rolls. I mean, Anthony, Anthony Davis says he like is arguably the best roller in the league um, because he's a great lob threat and playing, putting him in alongside LeBron who largely gets, you know, two feet in the paint whenever he wants uh, is a really good fit. makes it easier. You can have Anthony Davis's mid range proclivity be more of a feature rather than, you know, the entire basis of, you know, an right. yep. and, and with Joel, I've I've always kind of subscribed to a similar notion to you that like yeah it'd be like it's not as simple as just like give him a ball screen heavy guard and, and watch him work. Um, this year I thought he did get better in kind of his ability to score and produce in, in varying ways, and I think I think it makes a little more sense now because you can do some pick and roll stuff. It's in a non traditional way though, like he he'll just kind of saunter to the free throw line and get a mismatch and shoot over the top, or he'll get a will run a pick and roll. If he sets a good enough screen, you get the mismatch and he can just attack in the post or the movie open three comes. So I think after this pasture, I feel more encouraged about Joel, maybe being the offense number two alongside a guy who you know, dictates he play a smaller on ball role. But I still do think there are some precarious aspects of it. Um, what sort of player would you want this guy to be off the ball? Because Joel's still going to get a lot of on ball touches, right? I mean, he's number two because he is the best post scorer in the NBA. So what would you be looking for? Like, you know, obviously Dame is the big name because he might be available in the next year, but what, what would you be looking for in this sort of player off the ball to, you know, maximize their time alongside Joel when Joel was commandeering possessions? I think I'd want a baseline sort of shooting level and, and Lillard's a great example because he's not someone whose entire offensive game is driven by running around. You know, the, the Steph Curry comparisons to me have always been apples and oranges because of that. Uh, but you don't want to leave him standing wide open. You, he, he has that uh, spacing effect. He has some gravity. And so I think with Embiid, there's probably two different kind of options you're seeing when he has that guard next to him. The first one is all the pick and roll variety that you just described. And I think switching is a huge thing that shouldn't be understated. I like someone like Lillard um, and, and Kyle Lowry, of course, had this as well, who who's really comfortable hitting pull-up threes at volume because mm-hmm. the pull-up shot in particular, you got then defensively, you have to start thinking like, well, what happened? I'm going over these screens. Am I pushing these screens downhill? Do I need a third defender to really come into the paint, put a foot foot in the paint because of the switch, right? How are we going to handle this? If, if you, now you can't switch. Um, okay. What does that do to the combination of letting Embiid run free? We know he's not Anthony Davis per se, but he's giant. <laughs> so you're talking about offensive rebounding opportunities. And I just think that duality is something um, that's going to help the offense immensely. The second thing is the, that guy's off the floor or um, he's fatigued or you have a mismatch. Then you can do the stuff that I think we've seen in the last couple of years more often, which is one side's mostly cleared out, throw it down to the block. He's got good position. And like Bob's your uncle at that point, because he's, he's really effective doing that. You just wouldn't necessarily want him to do that uh, 50 times a game. And I think another thing we saw last year in the postseason, again, assuming he was healthy and had a gas tank, it's not super easy to do that on every key possession in the fourth quarter when the defense is locked into that action. So having other options to fall back on then allows you to, oh, look, a post-up opened up. We'll throw it in with 10 on the shot clock and we still have good offense versus, oh, we're trying to get this and we can't get it. And there's some kind of fronting and uh, it didn't work, throw it around. And now there's 10 seconds or eight seconds on the shot clock. And where do you go if you're Philadelphia? Um, That's what a lot of the Atlanta series felt like to me. And I think that's the kind of thing that, bringing in another guy like that completely sort of uh, changes the math on. Yeah. I I think you just described uh, the entirety of the Sixers last two playoff defeats, whether it's the Hawks, whether it's the Celtics of two years ago, where they were overmatched, of course, but especially the Celtics series in the bubble, (laughs) there are countless times where they would, 
they would front mark a smart and put someone on the backside late in the game. And it was like, all right, now there's eight seconds left. Yep. Josh Richardson trying to swing with the ball. And it's like, yeah. So you, you, I think Sixers fans, you get a little, a uh, little PTSD with that one there. Um, but I, sorry, I, sorry. <laughs> now, now the Celtics fans have to deal with that one. Now that they have Josh, yeah. but Josh, you know, Josh Richardson is, is a good example. I don't want to derail us in this because I think this is, we're getting into the meat of how I would think about, um, optimizing the offense around him. But when Richardson came in, I had optimism that he could continue to grow into this kind of role where he had some more uh, potency, I guess, on the ball, off the bounce, right? And it was like, I don't, I, at this point, I just don't really think that's who Josh Richardson is or is going to be. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just, there's not an extra gear or two. And you really need from a, kind of offensive initiator out on the perimeter standpoint, you need a guy who's in that upper echelon or near that upper echelon in those uh, sort of categories, I think, to really make the thing work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Richardson is, I mean, because is a good example of kind of expanding beyond like, who do you get to shift Joel down the hierarchy offensively? You still need the other guys around him, right? You still need the, the complimentary players. And he just didn't reach the threshold in terms of decision-making speed and effectiveness to be that. Yep that ideal play alongside of me, you know, the pet, he loves to on the mid-range jumpers rather than take the spot up three. So I think he's a really good example of the sort of player who makes sense, you know, on paper because he's a good perimeter defender and he shoots threes at a decent volume, but then you, you watch and you're like, it's not quite what you want alongside Joel. But um, the thing, the point you made a little earlier about like not leaving Joel, I think you saw that at times this past year when they would try and run things through Ben in the post, um, like they would put Joel on the perimeter. I, th- I think back to, I think it was game two when Ben had that big third quarter against the Hawks. They stationed Joel along the perimeter for a long time and the Hawks couldn't leave him because Joel was such a good mid-range scorer this year. You'd leave him, Ben makes that skip pass that he's good at from the post. And so like, I wonder if that's the sort of thing too, where like that's how you maintain viability for Joel off the ball, because of course he's not going to be running off of, you know, screens and pin downs and floppy actions, but he's such a good scorer these days that you can really leverage that into openings elsewhere and space for other guys. So that's kind of my main way that I would try and make sure he still is a a big threat off the ball. If he had to, if he was playing alongside a guy who forced him off the ball more often. Um, But is that, is that assuming like Simmons specific and having a post player or just in general, just in, just in general, Um, like in, like if you didn't want to run a pick and roll with him every play and you want to just make sure that he still had, if he still had offensive impact without taxing you, you talk about maybe trying to find more selectivity in those post touches um, because pick, I mean, station is a spot up guy is obviously less taxing than, you know, running a pick and roll, setting a screen and all those things. So that would be one thing I would try and do. Like, and I think the Sixers coaching staff did a pretty solid job at times when they could. Um, but with maybe with Joel specifically, unless you wanted to take it in a different direction, what ways do you think he still has to grow, you know, maybe to st- because the fact of the matter is like, it's, it's, even though Dane might be available, it's unlikely that the next couple of years, they're going to get someone who shifts Joel down, down a notch uh, offensively. So what, what things do you think he could do to maybe increase the Sixers ceiling offensively in the playoffs and kind of internal ways to just, you know, find growth beyond go trade for Dame Miller, which is a lot easier said than done. Man, you know, it's tough because I think the, I think the easy answer is, He's just got to improve playmaking. Um, And I know from this year to last year, it it was a big point of conversation that, uh, you know, he's, he's taken this leap forward in his playmaking. I think that was overstated. Um, You know, he's definitely continuing as players do in his age and his role to improve in some of those reads. But I I think as you saw throughout the course of the season and the postseason, it's still not, you know, um, both in terms of his ability and in terms of the environment and the structure of the offense, this kind of thing that's clicking, if you will, like you're rarely ever going to make a player like that, a great passer by the time he's 30 years old. What we do see historically is players who develop and improve, especially post players as they get older and get more experience and they learn specific reads. So I say it's tough because that's slightly different than the optimization we've been talking about with getting a guard, getting a guy who can take away some of his touches. And so it's, it's a little bit weird. I I don't know the answer really. It's like on one hand, if you stayed with the roster, my thought is 
well, the best thing you can do, and you're not going to have the greatest offense in the world, but the best thing you can do is try to find a way to make his reads easier um, and make the tax that the defense pays for selling out for his scoring in the post or the mid range costlier, which is just better shooters, better cutters, better kind of off ball offensive players around him. I, I, I kind of liked um, Seth Curry playing on the floor with them. I, I think Seth Curry in the last couple seasons has shown that that kind of like much lower, more human version of his brother is a, is a, is a very nice little complimentary offensive piece to have on the floor for these very reasons, right? Like you kick it to a guy like that. And instead of a 34% shooter, you're talking about a 44% shooter. Uh, that's a big deal. Um, so on one hand, it's like you could try to continue to move the offense in that direction. I think I'm more inclined to to say at a certain point, the personnel needs to improve. And then the development is still very similar, though, for, for Joel, like just passing reads, just understanding, OK, if I'm, if I'm all of a sudden I'm in a short roll situation or I agree with you that um, ability for him to kind of float in from the weak side to the foul line area where he's so good. And that's just not a place as a defense. You'd love him catching the ball. Right. Mm-hmm. Like understanding the read at that point, little little baby jumper that he puts in so effortlessly, um, extra Euro drive to the basket for an and one, a bucket, a dunk, whatever, or the quick kick. I think it's those things that are the things that are probably more realistic for him to improve and the things that as he continues to age, like that's what you're adding. The scoring game is already just phenomenal at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so a few things I want to unpack there. One, he's, he's the Steph, Seth Curry is a human version of his brother in the regular season, at least. The postseason, he, treated, he made up for the absence of Steph there. Um, but and, and two, with, with, with Seth, which is just kind of a tangent to, to give him some flowers, it's, it's cool to see how he's f- fared so well with three different types of offensive hubs. You know, from exactly. Dame, yep. From Dame to Luca to Joel, obviously the, the latter, the former two are a little higher end, but I think that's really cool for him. And I, that's one of the things I'm curious to see. Like, of course, I don't expect him to average 22 on 73% true shooting, but you saw a level of confidence and kind of savvy as a creator and off-ball player in that postseason that I'm wondering if he kind of maintains that, the approach at least. The, the results won't be there to that same degree, but I'm, that, that could be an area that I think really kind of maybe takes this offense, not to like the next level, but, you know, bumps it up from, I think last they were like 13th in offensive rating. Could they be a top eight or nine team in the regular season? You know, he got better with chemistry with Joel as the year went on. A lot of people like to do the, the Reddick versus Curry comparison when, the, when Seth was acquired, but they're just different players. I mean, he just has more on-ball ability than, than Jage. And I think that took some time for, for, for Joel to um, mesh with. And, but, um, but yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that, you know, maybe seems straightforward, but that we're hinting at a lot here is you mentioned like, yeah, do you want more Seth Curry's? Or do you want someone who actually, um, you know, like kind of rearranges how Joel works offensively is you want, you want the post-ups to be just a feature of the offense. You don't want to have to be the, right. the first resort that also becomes the last resort when, when things go awry. Um, do you have something to, to kind of chime in? I didn't have I don't think I had anything else there, but. No, I mean, I just, I, I think I'm, I feel like I'm dragging my feet on this issue because to a degree, especially in today's NBA, just getting that next level of offensive player is almost literally the thing that boosts you up that much. So if you go from a guy who helps a 41 win team become a 45 win team, that's the difference between getting a guy who's worth 10 wins or 12 wins instead of four or five wins. And I think you just need that level of player. So we talked about Richardson before. Um, I mean, I think to me, another one has been Tobias Harris, who again, yet another guy even way before coming to Philadelphia, I was lower on than sort of the general consensus. And and again, it's not to take away anything. These guys are all good players in their own right, but there's a big difference between sort of being the 44th best offensive player in the NBA today and like the 19th best offensive player in the NBA. And that often comes from this ability, like look at, look at Harris and Doc, I think has gotten a lot of credit for how he's used Tobias in pick and roll and how he's used some of his sort of uh, on ball, ball handling sort of creation elements to his game. But it's like, that's not a guy that can do that 
at high volume at high level reads against high pressure defenses. And so again, not never having that a minus just always having a bunch of B's or uh, maybe to use like a, a martial arts thing. Like you, you never have a high level Brown belt. You don't need a black belt, but you never have a high level Brown belt. And instead you just have a lot of blue belts who can kind of like, do, they, they do it. Okay. Right. And they can do it a little here and there. And it's kind of impressive when you watch young players grow into that role. And sometimes they get all-star nods and things like that. But I think what we're really talking about is like a wheat from the chaff kind of thing mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, we can, we can, talk about all the other complementary parts we want but i just still feel like they need an injection of another high level ish offensive player yeah and i think you know, tobias is, is another is a much higher level example of the tobias the josh richardson conundrum yeah yep. um you know is methodical is, is turned himself into a very good score as you as you were kind of prefacing there um but the, the passing while it was better this year is still not he's like the amount of times while i watch a tobias game and be like he misses the skip pass on the pick and roll happens far too often. Um, and the Sixers have the personnel, like I've talked about at length, like they have the shooting out, but they don't have the guys who can make those complex skip passes in the half court. And that's really, I think what, what hurts the offense, like, which yes, the guys who can make those are the high level creators because they draw those rotations and open up the corners. Um, that's really what they've been lacking to an extent. Tobias just isn't that he's not a super quick decision maker. You saw the flaws in the second half of that Atlanta series. I think he was in the game seven, eight of 24, whatever, for 22 points. Um, I, I would be curious, like, do you think if, like, how do you think this is a total hypothetical? And of course this entire you know, conversation is, is rolling around that theme, but what would, how would the season have ended differently to you if we placed 2020, 21 Joel on that 2018, 19 team with Jimmy and Ben and Tobias? Like what, what do you think of that? Because I think, I think Jimmy isn't the perfect pairing for Joel, but I think he is at least within earshot of what you're looking for from a perimeter guy. Yeah, boy, that's a tough <laughs> one. Um, that, that's really interesting. I've heard a lot of people sort of retrospectively talk about how, how they think the, that actual 2019 team was in the championship tier. And I think that's sort of validated with the single sample against Toronto um, given what we know about Toronto, both in the regular season and the playoffs. I always thought they were a little like of the three teams Toronto beat. They were really good teams. I always thought they were uh, a little bit behind the others, despite the one going seven games. That's how it goes sometimes. I, yeah, and, I agree. I agree too. I think yeah. they were, that's definitely the best team that Jewels have, but I do think it gets a little overstated because it came down to the final shot in game seven. But anyhow, continue. I just want to get in that. I definitely agree. Right. Uh, but I mean, the the difference in Embiid from 19 to 21 is material to me. Um, you know, I think I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think I had him in my top 10 in 19. And I, I was going over this recently in my notes and I do have him as improved. Would it be enough to kick them, you know, over the top of everyone? Um, I think it's enough to make them more competitive with the title teams. Therefore, mm-hmm increasing their odds of winning a title remember they still had reddick um you know who was who was you know now jj's just starting to get really old um but but you know they still had butler's not the ideal role for what we're talking about but there were there were pieces there and i think that team with 2021 Embiid is probably a team that we would think of as having a yeah i would say they would have a good enough offense to be in that championship tier in, in a typical season. Um, but yeah, I still think we want something probably, probably better in the areas that we've discussed than Butler as that, as that primary guy. Um, I'm, I'm already thinking ahead. Now I'm trying to remember what the heck has happened in this off season. Cause I said, I'm in off season mode. I don't <laughs> like to, it takes me forever to update the personnel. I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. LeBron plays for the Lakers now. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the 76ers have like a ton of these guys down the, down the sort of bench in the last year, right? Like it was, Oh, shake Milton has a game. Right. And of course the promise of maxi and like, do you think any of these guys have the ability to develop the kind of playmaking chops to go with some of the other spunk that we've seen from them? I think 
Yeah, I, and I guess just circling back, I, I just asked the thing about 2019, not to like open wounds for Sixers fans, but just to... No, that's why you did it. You did it and you put <laughs> yeah. my name on it. So <laughs> come yeah, after I, me more. Yeah, exactly. Um, direct all of your hate mail to, to Ben, not me. Um, <laughs> but I, just, I asked it just because I think what I was trying to get at there and have you kind of articulate is he is a more well-rounded offensive player. They're not well-rounded. He is a better offensive player. Like he's scoring-wise, there's a lot more diversity to how he can produce buckets efficiently. Um, but yeah, I think... I think Maxi is the guy that you wish either he was a couple of years older or Joel was a couple of years before. Like I wish you kind of maybe wish you could put Joel back two years ago. Uh, Cause I think he he's, he's closer to Jimmy in approach than he is Dame. Uh, the jumper, I think will be at a higher level. It is in his prime than Jimmy's ever was really. I know Jimmy had a couple of years where he was fine, but um, I think that sort of guy who can really get downhill is fairly decisive in his, in his moves and, and plays um makes a lot of sense of course it's it's a little tough to hitch your wagon to a 6162 guard who isn't you know a dynamite pull-up shooter you talk about dame and kyle Lowry, those are two guys who are just in a different stratosphere in terms of their pull-up gravity um it's easier to be a downhill oriented guy when you're jimmy than it is you know tyrese maxi but i think he is the guy that you would hope joel can maintain or approximate kind of last year's version of himself for the next few years so Mackey get to year four and then maybe you're really cooking with something there, um, which is tough to expect. I mean, Joel had an incredible year. He was deservedly, you know, a top two or three MVP candidate. But that's the guy that I think Maxi, like, I think Maxi is the one among maybe like Shake is too methodical, I think, in the way he plays and the passing just isn't there. He's also much older. I know he's only like, I think he's right around my age. So I don't want to call him old. Um, That's but, very old, Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I, I, as, as I continue to get uh, older, I try to, I try to always phrase these guys, friend these guys old in the context of the NBA. I don't want to call myself old, but um, he's a little older to the point, And he's played a lot of on ball reps throughout his career that you, I don't know if you'll ever get to the passing stage you need, but Maxi is the guy to me that I think could get there. I think you would like, there's probably a lot of pressure. I don't know about pressure, but, if you were trying to see how could the Sixers, you know, bridge the gap from second round out to, you know, actual title contender, it would put a lot of pressure on Maxi. I'm not going to put that pressure on him because that's unreasonable, but he's the sort of guy more or less that I think makes sense. He's got the intermediate game. He's a good defender or he's going, I think he's going to be a very good guard defender um, and get downhill, get, get his, he can turn his shoulder to get downhill against guys. I think that's a really important thing. So he would be the one among kind of these crop of young guys with, you know, the Shakes, the Furcons, the Matisses, the Isaiah Joe, the Jaden Springers. I think that is most likely and also compliments Joel pretty well, even if the shooting isn't quite to the degree you need for a small guard. Yeah. And I'm, I'm even with him thinking more about the passing um, mm-hmm. because I think from what I've seen from Maxi, his, his sort of um, his predisposition, if you will, is have having a better feel for the scoring game. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, when, when to get downhill, when to pull up. And then most young players, if they continue to refine that, you could have a pretty good offensive score in that role. So you have on ball scoring from the guard position, like you said, six, one, six, two. Um, but what kind of dimension could you add as a passer? And to your point, their timelines are, are slightly off because if that, if that actually comes to fruition, it seems very unlikely. And again, I say this as someone who did not pour over, uh, maxi film when he was at kentucky um you know we should we should talk to the ringers jay kyle man if we're gonna if we're gonna get into kentucky scouting but like it just seems to me that that's less likely and certainly to your point less likely to happen in this window here um windows are now hard as an aside in the modern nba because of health science and technology and vitamins that everyone's taking and (laughs) whatever's in the water like i'm pretty sure everyone's going to play till they're 40 now i don't know what's going on so hopefully joel despite his his frame and his history has longer than you know just a couple of years here in this sweet spot um but to your point like if you if you could bottle 2021 Embiid, you'd want to pair him with a player who Certainly, if if Maxi pans out, his timeline is 2025 instead of 2022. Yeah, unfortunately, they're about seven years apart or six and a half years. Apart. I don't know exactly. He turns 21 on November 4th. So anyone listening, if you're looking for a birthday, uh, November, you can do that for Tiger. Yeah, and beats 94. So yeah. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. He turns 28 next year. I'd say it's it's. I mean, yeah. Wait a second. When did that happen? Right. That's not right. It's speaking it's, of old. Yeah. 
<laughs> uh, now I'm going to put an embargo on that, on that word for my podcast. Um, but I think with Maxi, that's honestly the passing is the thing, the biggest swing skill for him. I'm confident in the jumper. Like I think it'll get there. Um, you don't show the flashes he showed at youth levels at Kentucky, even summer league and not be like a viable shooter to set up your driving game like him. The passing got better. I think he's kind of always had that, that right to left skip. I think he had like the right to left skip in a preseason game or the first game of the year. Um, had a really nice read to Dwight Howard in game six against the Hawks from the top of the key. Um, but he look, definitely... Look at you go. <laughs> it's amazing. I, Keep going. <laughs> yeah, like an ex- encyclopedia of, of Tyrese Maxey's best passes in his career. Um, but uh, that's the biggest thing for me is because I do agree that the the assessment that he is more wired to score and doesn't always discern the proper decision there. Like he discerned the proper decision in terms of which sort of scoring avenue to take, but scoring versus passing is really where he needs to improve to have legit kind of, I don't know about, I wouldn't bet on him being like a high level primary, but I think to really become a really, really good secondary, I think he'll be a good secondary, but to really kind of be in the upper echelon of that archetype, he'll have to improve the discretion there. And I think he can get there, but it's the, it's the area offensively that I'm the most hesitant about and monitoring the most closely because I feel pretty good about everywhere else in his game. Yeah. And it's, it's, I appreciate that. That's a, that's a nice summary, um, an encyclopedic summary. In fact. <laughs> but I, I think all of this is to say the answer to your original question that we started with and kind of where I probably land is um, Daryl is going to have to bring in, even if it's not Dame Lillard, I think you probably have an easier path to get to what we're talking about for this kind of offensive structure um, with a, an additional piece of personnel coming from the outside that's not on the roster right now. Yeah, and I think yeah. I mean, it's been a, it's been a summer of, or an off season of Ben Simmons discussions. And I think the way I've always tried to frame it is, you're not going to find like a one for one basis of a deal uh, where like the team is trading away the team that is going is acquiring Ben is trading away similar value of players whether it's one or two or things like that to make this team as good as it can be uh, around Joel, it's going to have to be Ben plus a Maxi and Matisse or a pick to, you have to upgrade from Ben rather than, you know, a lateral move. And I think that's the challenge for Ben. The last thing I did want to discuss a little bit, because we mentioned Dame a lot and he's obviously the lead guy that makes sense for the Sixers. How do you feel about the, the Beal pairing here? Because he's such a different sort of offensive player than Dame, you know, he has his reputation as an, as a really good shooter, but He's largely an off-ball shooter. The pull-up numbers haven't really been good the last couple of years. He's an incredible finisher and driver. How do you think those two might, might work? You can't get too picky, of course, because he would help a lot. But what do you think of that that pairing? To me, off the bat, I feel a little more dubious of it, but I would love to hear kind of how you you know, interpret that that potential fit. Well, I mean, again, this goes back to the levels I was discussing. I think Lillard just on a different level as an mm-hmm. offensive player. As good as Beal is offensively, I give Lillard another rung up the ladder. Um, so with that said, to your point, I think the fit is not quite as good either. So I think you would be getting you would be getting an injection if that could happen, depending on what else happened in the move. Uh, I would immediately reassess sort of where I put Philadelphia in my championship hierarchy because you're getting that injection of another high-level offensive player that we're talking about. So I think you check the main box with that move. But is is he as good as Lillard on offense, in my opinion? No. And then would the fit be quite as nice? No. So you kind of have to think about how the pieces stack together um, because, as you said, I just don't think his – on ball stuff and, and sort of the things we've described have been uh, as potent as the other players that we've discussed in this podcast, or they aren't, aren't as potent for him. And, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, he's so skilled in certain areas offensively that maybe that just does the trick, right? Like beg- beggars can't be choosers, but you're not, we're not talking about beggars here. We're talking about Brad Beal, like we're talking about an all-star <laughs> level offensive talent, or maybe even slightly more just on the offensive side, maybe like an all NBA pure offensive talent, the defense. I mean, both, both him and Lillard, um, let's <laughs> we're, we're running out of time. So let's just say they, they leave a little to be desired on the yeah. defensive end. Yeah. Uh, but I those think, are, yeah, those are my initial thoughts on Brad. Yeah. And I think, I, I think there would be a pretty interesting kind of two man game off dribble handoffs between Joel and, and, and Brad. Um, but 
Yeah, I, I, I think part of why he's done so well in Washington as this main guy with this, such a heavy off-ball dosage is because, and this is reductive, but I think it's a fair summation, is a lot of their offenses like get out, like do everything to make sure Brad can be in a successful position. And Joel Joel just isn't that sort of, he's just not that sort of player. Not that like he would infringe on him, but in the same way, but like, he's just not the way you watch the way Beal plays. Now it wouldn't align with how Joel would fare ideally in a complimentary role. And I think even when you look at it through a, a framework of like a title contention, I don't know if there's ever been like if Beal, Tobias and Joel are your three best offensive players, I think you're, a little low in terms of like the feel for offensively and the decision-making there. So this is like a yeah. total hypothetical. I mean, Beal could sign an extension and, you know, six months or whatever and make this entire thing moot. But um, that's kind of just conceptually when I take a step back, I worry about kind of the, the processing speed and things like that. Dame is obviously much, I mean, Dame is just better in terms of skill and processing of things. So there's, there's that, but yeah, this, this sort of Washington and not analog, but like, Washington hypothetical is a little more dubious to me, but again, he would make them better. I don't know about how much better we can't be too picky because he would get two feet in the paint and have scoring gravity in a way that the Sixers haven't had beyond three quarters of a year, Jimmy Butler. So you can't be too selective, but um, anything else you want to add on this discussion? My, my last thing is, are there any other like historical analogs you talked about? Hakeem, you talked about a little bit about Tim Duncan. Um, the first one we talked about was Patrick Ewan. Anything else, any other teams that you think might well, just to be just to be fair, I mean, I think early Wilt is the exact same functional kind of um, lacking playmaking, monster scoring, monster paint defender. Totally different game, but uh, I mean these these players, much like Embiid, are right in the thick of it. Like they are hugely needle moving players, but it's just a question of how you fit the entire thing around them because they tend to have like two of the three main areas checked. So mm-hmm. how do you complement that other area? Uh, you said something, the only, the only other thing I kind of wanted to throw out there, you said something about dribble handoff actions. I, I think we've seen a lot of success. I may have even talked about it in a, I don't know if it was the same podcast or a different podcast. I talk about building around different big men archetypes. Um, at some point last year, I did a thinking basketball podcast on that. And one of the one of the archetypes I kind of thought of was this elbow initiator. You know, you see Bam in Miami doing this a lot. Um, Jokic, to some degree, hangs out in this area. Like, there's a lot. Then there's plenty about Marcus Gasol. There's plenty of other bigs who have played like this. Uh, it's an interesting thing to think about how that would fit with movement players like be a little bit more off ball getting dribble handoff action, getting back cuts, how the offense could be shaped around that. And again, it's one of those things where I don't know if Embiid right now has the feel and the passing chops to really make that hum. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know what you give up by getting him around the elbows more versus looking for low post position and things like that. But it is an interesting thing to, it's, it's an interesting road to travel down and we'll have to table it. We can't do it anymore in this in this conversation but just you talking about that option um i think is kind of another thing that could potentially fit into many of the questions and answers we've had in this conversation right like what would i potentially work on what's a realistic thing um maybe a partner at the elbow who could help him with just a little simple read of handoff burst back door i think tim duncan had vision struggles when he came out of Wake Forest and he came in and he was another similar guy who's like he could be a very good low post scorer great paint protector and one of the things those early Spurs did was um, let me get a couple free buckets a game by curling the guard around him at the elbow and if you make the wrong decision now it's an easy pass for him so maybe spots on like like that on the floor with these players who aren't initiating uh, off the bounce who aren't initiating in classic like point of attack pick and roll uh, because of obviously the big has the ball instead and you give them two or three simple reads in this case you give them beat a handoff or a back cut or if it's a full loop and the defender trails now most teams know how to defend these kinds of simple actions but 20 years ago this is what the Spurs did with Duncan and I think that's kind of another potential thing that could be out there yeah and I think just before we kind of conclude, if I had to pick one thing for Joel to improve offensively beyond just the proper time to pass versus not pass, it would be the interior side. I think, I think he is pretty skilled with the the post to exterior stuff, but it's the threading needle to the cutters. It's the 
the high low stuff is good, but it's that interior to interior stuff that I really would be working on. Like if I'm, if Drew Hanlon, you're listening to this, like I, that's something that I would, I would be, and he's not obviously, and he knows what he's doing, but that's the one thing I would really be hammering. Should home. be listening. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We'll get, we'll get Drew, we'll get Drew, uh, listen to this. No, that um, low, that low double or, you know, mm-hmm. like he's especially, I want to say the Atlanta series, it's all kind of blurring together in terms of when these, I don't have the uh, encyclopedia of his passes memorized like, like you do with Maxi, but there was, there was one series where there were a number of um, kind of like interior passes off of a low double in that block spot where he gets it all the time and they clear out. And it's like, he, he needed to be early with it and he's still not at that stage, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the passes that the, the, the Jokic special where it's just like, oh, we're going to double up the layup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Joel, Joe, I mean, Joel, I know Joel can complimentary of Nicola, so he should uh, see if he can absorb some of Nicola's uh, feathery interior playmaking. But uh, Ben, really appreciate taking the time today and giving us a bunch of insight about, about uh, kind of Joel Embiid and the team building around him. Um, where can people follow you? Where can they find your work? I know you're in off-season mode, but we are quickly approaching – uh, the regular season, we are fewer than two months away now. We're about almost uh, seven weeks, eight weeks, uh, not to scare you, but yes, no, um, that's you're giving me heart palpitations. Uh, <laughs> I'm giving myself heart palpitations too, but uh, where can people find your work? You know, those you log into Twitter and then you see the 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 folks with like 55 days until the NBA season. And I'm like, I'm like why are you pressuring me? <laughs> I, know, I feel that too. I'm gonna have to mute the before before the NBA season or something. I was afraid, yeah, like, yeah. Um, th- thinking basketball, thinking basketball youtube and things like that if you're if you're looking for more hardcore stuff additional content additional articles um all like a bunch of proprietary stats historical databases that's patreon.com slash thinking basketball uh there's different options there for members and that's about it thinking basketball the book on amazon uh i think this is my best plugging ever i always fall apart during the plugging i never people are like where can they find you i'm like right here on this podcast (laughs) No, I, I am the exact same way. When I go up, when I am a guest, I get the same thing. And sometimes I flub the end of my own podcast when I try to include things. But uh, once again, Ben, thank you for listening or thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining me. See, look at that. I, I, I spoke to you. Thank I you for joining you. me. Yeah. For everyone listening, thank you for doing so. Uh, I'll be back soon. But in the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. Talk to all of you again soon.